Hello, welcome to the Dear Writer podcast. I'm Sarah. And I'm Ashley. We're two aspiring collaborative authors sharing our writing journey with you. The ups, the downs, and everything in between. Whether you're just starting out or a more experienced writer, we hope that you'll find this podcast inspiring and thought-provoking. And here's the show. Hey everyone, welcome back to Dear Writer. Today we're recording episode 79 and it's another one of our Talking Shop episodes. And like most of these short episodes, we'll just get straight into it for the sake of time. So Sarah, what's your tool of the month this month? My tool of the month this month is an article called You're Gonna Need a Bigger Boat by Arne Dietrich. I think I'm saying that right. Difficult names as usual. (laughs) Yes. In the text journal of writing and writing courses, volume 16, issue one, 2012. So similar to Ashley in the last Talking Shop episode, I found myself this time roving into the rather strange and mysterious subject of how creative ideas are developed. Excellent. Ideation. (laughs) And, you know, even though I was looking specifically in writing journals, somehow I still managed a chance upon a sort of neuroscience-based perspective on the matter. Don't ask me how or why I'm attracted to these sorts of articles, but apparently for me, it's always about the brain. So the brain's really interesting, so I'm not surprised. It is very interesting. And the author started the article by laying out the task ahead, which they kind of pointed out is far from a simple one because understanding the brain's connections when a new idea is created is much like in in quotation marks sailing the seven seas in a rowboat fair enough (laughs) yeah many have attempted to form theories on how this happens we heard a little bit of a theory last talking chop episode But, you know, we're still a very long way away from understanding exactly how the puzzle all fits together when it comes to creative ideas being formed in the brain. And so a lot of different theories have been proposed, but they've all remained fairly simplistic in nature. And they kind of try to diminish creative thought into one category. But, you know, the author concluded in an introduction to this topic that Quote, what has become apparent in recent years is creativity is too complex and too distributed in the brain to be captured in a net held together by such a premature category formations and ontological danglers. How else then do you tackle a problem that size? We could start by taking the famous advice Brody gave Quint in the movie Jaws after getting a first glimpse of the size of the great white. You're going to need a bigger boat. So that's where the title comes from. I love when journals use interesting metaphors throughout. It's my favorite. This article, I did find there was like a fair amount of humor, at least at the start. It got kind of into the nitty gritty a bit further on. Yeah. But I definitely appreciated it. (laughs) So the author started by explaining common thoughts around our sense of self and creativity and how we we sort of run ourselves into a bit of a trap, which leads us to believe that there's like a muse sort of working away in the background or some higher sense of self. And this is because we think of ourselves as I and think that I has some form of central inner location. But in fact, 
Our entire system runs on millions of neurons and pathways that all connect in different ways and kind of create this illusion. So the way thoughts come to consciousness is kind of of prime importance here when talking about ideation. And the author used a political system to kind of explain how it all works together. Okay. So although the neurons are kind of all independent from one another, like they're all separate neurons that connect together, they form kind of coalitions with the goal of getting into power, which is entering the realm of consciousness. (laughs) Yeah. So a task can be completed and they're quite competitive in this. So there are always other neurons in the wings trying to dislodge the current reigning coalition from their seat of power. Okay. And the author said, I really liked this. The author said, it's essentially a single output decision from a society of millions of individual units, each with its own mind and own idea of what to do. In principle, the case is the same for neurons, except the brain isn't so much of a democracy with orderly elections as it is a sort of gang war ruled by the law of the street. I really quite liked that analogy. I thought that was hilarious. And just imagine he's like, I mean, I know clearly they're cells. They're not like weird little minion things, but I just imagine them like all kind of vying for power. gangster like so that just made my day anyways that's such a great analogy i love it so much yeah so you have all these neurons competing against each other to make it to consciousness and how this relates to creativity is to do with your working memory so your current recent and relevant information to the task at hand is kind of what's in the working memory so you know what I've started talking about, for example, at the start of this talking shop episode, you've kind of got that in your working memory as I'm discussing what's coming next so that you can relate it all and put it all together. The other sort of type of memory is your long-term memory. So the sort of things that stored away in the recesses of your mind, like a vault. And so the working memory is conscious memory. And so for an insight to be created, it has to make its way from long-term memory into your working memory. So there's usually a task set, the current issue at hand, which the reigning coalition of neurons are performing. (laughs) So it's just amazing. You know, they're trying to push their bill through if we, not that the article said this, but you know, they're, they're all trying to push their bill through whether it's for a certain movement to be generated by the body or to link ideas together. So the degree or strength of which this task set is maintained can alter. So when this task set is destabilized, either a new task set takes over. So, you know, you've got these neurons waiting in the wings and they're like, ha no, we're going to do this now. <laughs> or you stay on task by sheer force of concentration. So they call that kind of top-down processing because you're kind of influencing the connections of the neurons through sort of processes in the brain, which they didn't really go into. And I have like a shaky understanding of that. So we won't quite go down like (laughs) the track of top-down processing, but you know, you can influence sort of your concentration and staying on the task. 
But also there can be no task to take over and you then begin the process of daydreaming and something called task set inertia happens where the current task is basically put on hold. And so then the author went on to describe a second theory called fringe working memory, which teeters on the edge of consciousness. So your mind is still working on a task, but it's now in a state of lower priority, kind of running in the background. I think if you think of how programs are running on like your computer in the background and things are like, like it's on a slower kind of scale compared to the current task and the random access memory on computers. But, you know, it's a similar kind of thing in your mind. And the author likened this to having something on the tip of your tongue. So, you know, it's there, but you're not able to ignite the associated knowledge network to bring it into focus. So, sorry, bear with me. I know this is like, I've actually condensed it down a lot. (laughs) And and I'm like, all this information is relevant to, to get to the point of the article kind of. Anyways. So the author identified two basic ways which ideas come into creation in light of this. And one is top-down processes in the conscious working memory. So where related neural networks are activated and each idea is sifted through one by one until the correct solution is found. So those are the things that are in your conscious working memory. You've got a certain amount of stuff that's stored there that you're conscious of and you're like purposefully going through each one like, oh, you know, maybe if we did this or, oh no, that wouldn't work. And then you move on to the next one. But you know, that is limited because it's limited by your specific set of beliefs. And that kind of biases you to looking at specific solutions. So when this top-down process fails in the working memory, so the solution is not within the working memory (laughs) Um, the idea is set aside to in quotation marks incubate and though it is out of sight of the conscious working memory it is still being worked upon in the fringe memory but at a slower rate and with more creative license than your logical top-down processes might allow for So not only does your mind dig into the forgotten, dusty, long-term storage for solutions, it also clashes with new information that's coming in. So in your working memory, though, it it might not make sense to put two things together. So, you, you know, you don't naturally do that. But in this fringe memory, you know, it's clashing with other things that are coming in. So, and with task set inertia, altering the strength of the task so you know it's now a lower priority and you know your current task and your working memory that you've moved on to might be lower priority which gives a bit more power for these coalitions of networks in the fringe memory to keep kind of culminating an idea and keep incubating it so it allows competing neurons some airtime and All these things can clash and the insight appears in your current working memory, which gives you that aha moment (laughs) when you get certain things clashing. Like, you know, you might have watched a program last night was kind of the example that they used about a kangaroo and that might clash with like this new idea that you've been trying to find a solution to. And then somehow the two come together and you're like, ah, I never thought of it like this way. 
And that's kind of that ah oh, moment is when it moves from the fringe memory into your conscious right. working memory. So that was basically the sort of a summary of what was in the article and really just the process that goes on, um, even though you're not really aware of it. And, you know, a lot of authors can't really pinpoint. They're like, oh, you know, I just, I couldn't really think about it. Um, I, I tried thinking about this new novel idea, but it just didn't feel right. So I put it aside for a while and then, you know, it, I guess it just slowly formed, <laughs> you know, um, and when in actual fact, you've kind of like all this going on in the background and trying to find solutions to the questions that you've already asked. So it doesn't just appear from nowhere or like there's not like this muse that's like sitting there going, oh, I don't really feel like working today. It is actually a very scientific process. Uh, they still don't know very much about it, but we're slowly getting there slowly getting there and I must say that although it actually in the introduction to this article claimed to simplify the process <laughs> it is actually quite detailed or at least from my perspective yeah it seemed very in-depth yeah and it was quite challenging at times to wrap my head around this so I do hope that I've done it some <laughs> justice and that you've all learned a little more about how your brain works to come up with an idea it's, the article didn't suggest any purposeful way to make use of the information, but it did get me wondering, you know, can I practice daydreaming in <laughs> order to cultivate newer and more original thoughts, which is literally food for thought. <laughs> oh my God, yes. <laughs> yeah. So that was the article that I read. And again, it was called You're Gonna Need a Bigger Boat by Arne Dietrich. Dietrich? I feel like that's the right way to say that. I'm sorry. I'm terrible with names, as people may have Because we had this last now. week. <laughs> Both of us had to apologize. Last, yes. last month, sorry. Last month's talking shop. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So what was your tool of the month, Ashley? So my tool of the month this month is semi-related to my tool of the month last month because in the article that I went over last month, they mentioned Malcolm Cowley's four stages of writing and it like mm. piqued my interest and I had noted it down and I was like, I'm going to look into this and sort of see what it's all about. So that's what I'm going to talk about today. So there is a little bit of overlap, but he's a very eloquent writer. So a lot of it's direct quotes from him because it he just writes it in such a fantastic way. <laughs> so I didn't find the, well, I'll go into where the four stages of writing come from, but I've used an article which is called Malcolm Cowley on the four stages of writing, lessons from the first five years of the Paris reviews. And it was in an online magazine called The Mad Marginalin, in, published in 2013 by Maria Popova. So there's a little bit of history to this. Back in 1953, um, there were three literary enthusiasts who came together to found a, a magazine called the Paris Review, which I hadn't even heard of this. And I did some digging. It was very interesting. Anyway, so I ended up changing the face of literary journalism. So basically it provided in-depth conversations with famous authors all about craft and writing and there's like you can actually go if you look up the Paris review now they have every single interview 
since 1953 that you can go through and read so it's pretty interesting yeah so it's been going for a long time so it's all arranged by decade but they interview some really really interesting people both writers uh and uh screenplay writers directors things like that and so it's been going for a long time but in 1958 they made the first collection of those interviews compiled it into a book which they called writers at work And it featured a very lengthy introduction by Malcolm Cowley, who edited the anthology. And it was in this introduction that he postulates his theory on the four stages of writing, which basically came from all of the reading through all the interviews with all the authors. So I thought I'd open with one of his quotes, which is, there would seem to be four stages in the composition of a story. First comes the germ of the story, which we talked about last month, then a period of more or less conscious meditation, which we kind of touched on last month, mm-hmm. then the first draft, and finally the revision, which may be simply pencil work, as John O'Hara calls it, that is minor changes in wording, or may lead to writing several drafts and what amounts to a new work. So that's sort of his brief overview of the four stages of composing fiction. And so I thought I'd go into each of his four stages and I've just picked the quite like lengthy quotes, but they really, he's just written them so well. And I think it's quite interesting just to see his thoughts on it. And he's like compiled it with lots of like mini quotes from other author interviews. Yeah. So stage one, which we went into a little bit last month was ideation. So his quote is, The germ of a story is something seen or heard or heard about or suddenly remembered. It may be a remark casually dropped at the dinner table or again, maybe the look on a stranger's face. Almost always, it is a new and simple element introduced into an existing situation or mood. Something that expresses the mood in one sharp detail. Something that serves as a focal point for a hitherto disorganized mass of remembered material in the author's mind. James describes it as the precious particle the stray suggestion, the wandering word, the vague echo, at a touch of which the novelist's imagination winces at the prick of some sharp point. (laughs) And he adds that its virtue is all in its needle-like quality, the power to penetrate as finely as possible. And it's always such a great way to describe like the spark of an idea. Yeah. Like, I wish I could say it so eloquently. It's very poetic. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the actual passage that this came from was like massive, massive. But <laughs> this is, you know, the general first part, which is the ideation. Um, and then it goes into his second stage, which is the incubation stage. And I've just pulled another sort of lengthy quote where he explains what it is. And again, it's just great, <laughs> great writing and interesting to kind of, because he mixes in some perspectives of other authors as well. So the quote is, the book or story shapes up, assumes its own specific form, that is, during a process of meditation that is the second stage in composition. Angus Wilson calls it the gestatory period and says it is very important to me. That's when I'm persuading myself of the truth of what I'm about to say. And I don't think I could persuade my readers unless I'd persuaded myself first, which I thought was quite cool. A cool way of looking at it. Yeah, definitely is. So the period may last for years, as with Warren's novels and most of Henry James's novels as well, or it may last exactly two days, 
is in the extraordinary case of George Simeon. Or most of the process, including all the early steps, may be carried on without the writer's volition. He wakes before daybreak with the whole story in his head, as Joyce Carey did in San Francisco, and hastily writes it down. Or again, and I think most frequently, the meditation is a mixture of conscious and unconscious elements, as if a cry from the depths of sleep were being heard and revised by the waking mind. Which is... (laughs) written so well and so many like interesting things I like how it lasts exactly two days <laughs> yeah. for the specific author it's style of writing sounds very eloquent mm. I mean a cry yeah. from the depths of sleep being heard by the waking mind <laughs> so good I love how it kind of relates to the one that I was talking about as well yeah, yeah. I was thinking about that so this will be it, it has quite a nice link and it kind of links to the last episode too so Nice yeah. full picture, I nice guess. Nice theme kind of going there. <laughs> yes. um, so the the third step that Cowley has in his four stages of writing is the first draft. So the first draft of a story is often written at top speed. Probably that is the best way to write it. Well, we'll see about that. Dorothy Canfield Fisher, who is not among the authors interviewed, once compared the writing of a first draft with skiing down a deep slope that she wasn't sure she was clever enough to manage. Oh, (laughs) yeah, I can see that. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Frank O'Connor explains the need for haste in his own case. Get black on white, he says. (laughs) That's what I always do. I don't give a hoot what the writing's like. I write any sort of rubbish which will cover the main outlines of the story, then I begin to see it. There are other writers, who, however, who work ahead uh, laboriously, revising as they go. William Stratton says, I seem to have some neurotic need to be perfect each paragraph, each sentence even, as I go along. And Dorothy Parker reports that it takes her six months to do a story. I think it out and then I write sentence by sentence. Uh, no first draft. I write five words, but then I change seven. So, <laughs> so it kind of feels more like me. Yeah, I, I would say <laughs> that, I mean, I don't get it perfect the first draft. No. But I definitely am one to do a bit more revising then. Yeah, not so much a skiing down a slope that I don't know if I'm good enough to make it to the bottom. Well, I mean, it's not like I don't still have that, but it's not about speed for me. Definitely yeah. not. Yeah. Um, so then his last stage of fiction writing is revision, 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 which I totally feel that. And he says, there is no stage of composition at which these authors differ more from one another than in this final stage of preparing a manuscript for the printer. Even that isn't a final stage for O'Connor. I keep on writing, he says, and after it's published, and then after it's published in book form, I usually rewrite it again. I'm so glad I'm not the only one. (laughs) I really vibed with that as well. I was like, oh, yes, it's never ending. You know, you look at it and you're like, oh, now that I have a physical copy, I want to read like cover to cover when the rain falls, but I'm also a bit scared too. (laughs) Me too. I haven't done it. I was like, I'm going to wait a while. Until I'm hoping I can wait long enough that other people find a lot of mistakes and then I can find the same mistakes and it won't upset me. (laughs) That's not a bad strategy. (laughs) That's my plan. And I don't want to like, I know there's some parts that, not that I'm not happy with, but I'm always like, ah, we probably could have like totally rewritten this if we wanted, but we didn't. And then I'm like, oh, am I going to read through it and then be like, regret it. So I'm just putting it off for now. 
I might give it a go in a bit, <laughs> but yeah. Anyway, sorry, continue. <laughs> no, so the quote continues, um, Francois Sagan, on the other hand, spends very little time in revision. Simeon spends exactly three days revising each of his short novels. Most of that time is devoted to tracking down and crossing out the literary touches, adjectives, adverbs, and every word, which is just there to make an effect. Every sentence is just there for the sentence. You know, you have a beautiful sentence, cut it. (laughs) I liked that. I was like, that's often what we do. Go through delete, 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 delete. Yes. Delete that, delete that, delete that. And literally that is... (laughs) You're like, hey, that's so much more coherent now. Yeah. Who needs all that fluff? <laughs> exactly. Joyce Carey was another deletionist. I love that. It's a deletionist. <laughs> deletionist. I like that term. Me too. Um, many of the passages he crossed out of his first drafts were those dealing explicitly with ideas. I work over the whole book, he says, and cut out anything that does not belong to the emotional development, the texture of the feeling. Um, Thurber revises his stories by rewriting them from the beginning time and time again. Oh, I also do that too, though. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, like, not rewriting. Not fully rewrite. No. Close to sometimes. <laughs> feels like it, at least. A story I've been working on, he says, was written 15 complete times. There must have been close to 240,000 words in all the manuscripts put together, and I must have spent 2,000 hours working at it. Yet the finished story can't be more than 20,000 words. That would make it about the longest piece of fiction he has written. Um, men mm. like Thurber and O'Connor, who rewrite endlessly, endlessly, find it hard to face the interminable prospect of writing a full-length novel. I can see why. <laughs> if you're doing that much rewriting. Yeah. 20,000 words, is that's like the long short story kind of length. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Took him to 240,000 words in the manuscript of rewriting. That's hilarious. <laughs> Yum. Oh, my goodness. Well, we're not that intense. Not that intense. We're probably in the middle somewhere. Um, yeah. But it's interesting to have a glimpse at all the different <laughs> styles, styles of editing. Yeah. So, yes, yeah, so that was the – I've left quite a bit out, but that was, you know, I think the four key sort of quotes that I thought people might get a lot of interesting things out of. Yeah. So that was Malcolm Cowley's four stages of writing. And if you wanted to, I guess, check out his full essay, you can look in the anthology called Writers at Work. There's actually multiple versions of that now, and they've got all got different authors who do the introduction essay. Mm-hmm. Or you could check out the Paris Review online, which has tons of interviews. That's probably what I'm going to do next time. Find an interesting <laughs> interview in there or maybe an interesting article to share with everyone. So, so yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. I enjoyed that. So many interesting, just like funny quirks that people have. And you're like, I do that. Or like, oh my gosh, I don't do that. But that's hilarious. (laughs) can relate to so much of it. Yeah. Um, So what are you reading this month for fun, Sarah? I'm reading a book called The Hunting Wives by May Cobb. Okay. I'm going to, I'll read out the blurb and then I'll say kind of what I think of it so far. I haven't gotten too far through it yet. Here's the blurb. Sophie O'Neill left behind an envy-inspiring career and the stressful competitive life of big city Chicago to settle down with her husband and young son in a small Texas town. It seems like the perfect life with a beautiful home in an idyllic rural community. But Sophie soon realizes that life is now too quiet and she's feeling bored and restless. Then she meets Margot Banks, 
an alluring socialite who is part of an elite clique secretly known as the Hunting Wives. Sophie finds herself completely drawn to Margot and swept into her mysterious world of late-night target practice and dangerous partying. As Sophie's curiosity gives way to full-blown obsession, she slips farther away from the safety of her family and deeper into this nest of vipers. When the body of a teenage girl is discovered in the woods where the hunting wives meet, Sophie finds herself in the middle of a murder investigation and her life spiraling out of control. What an outrageous story already. <laughs> Just the blurb. You're like, what? It apparently has won quite a few awards this book. I have not that I've like noted down which awards or anything. I just, you know, it was kind of one of those ones that starts off this award-winning novel. No, it's one da 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 da. I'm like, okay, yeah. well, but I kind of picked it out as something a bit different to read this month, along with a host of other books to keep me amused when I go into hospital. <laughs> so far, it strikes me as desperate housewives, but with a murder spin. <laughs> basically okay fair enough kind of the i feel like the, the gist of the yeah the vibe of where it's going not necessarily a bad thing because i did really enjoy desperate housewives and it was on <laughs> and i do like murder mystery so i could kind of get behind the mashup yeah it, i'm definitely intrigued to as to how it turns out though i'm not 100 percent sure about the protagonist yet um <laughs> i mean she claims that she's not shallow. <laughs> Yet so far, what I've read, she's spent her time stalking the town celebrity in hopes of becoming friends, this Margot Banks person. Right. And she's she's quite dogged in this, really. And like, <laughs> it's, it's quite stalkery. <laughs> she's literally like, you know, been on Facebook and stuff and then like discovered, oh, she's gone to like this bar so that then she like got her friend to come with her. And not only was she like trying to like, you know, buddy up to this rich person, she was also in, in, initially in the first scene quite disparaging to her friend as well like okay the contrast that they draw with like her friend kind of being a bit frumpy and kind of house frumpy housewife kind of thing and she's a bit embarrassed of her friend and I'm like you're not shallow because <laughs> <laughs> you're sure sounding like it right now <laughs> yeah sure? um, but you know obviously protagonists especially when it's a first person perspective are somewhat biased in their own viewpoint so I'm sure she's got a lot of lessons to learn throughout the book but it should be interesting to say the least it sounds amusing nonetheless so (laughs) yeah so at this point I'm continuing to read it we'll see how it goes how about you Ashley what book are you reading at the moment well I've been way too busy to start any new books because I've been slammed editing um, one of the anthology books that we're putting together for Auckland writers. So I'm reading everyone else's short stories. It's like 40,000 words that's been taking up a significant proportion of my time. Um, Mm -hmm. So no time for reading for me at the moment. Hopefully next month though. I'm looking forward to getting this off my plate. But it has been very beneficial, I think you know, the editing other yeah, people's stories definitely. and stuff. Like it definitely, like even though it takes a lot of time because we're being quite um thorough. Yeah. 
know, not just we're not just editing like grammar and things. We are also giving suggestions for you know like the plot and stuff like that. So it's been quite okay. interesting to yeah. you know think about like think about that for like all these different stories and all these different genres. So I've been enjoying mm-hmm. that. It's been an interesting experience. You know, different to when you edit your own books, which you know sometimes you can get a bit caught up in it (laughs) well you know you just you're either one or the other you're either like really really critical of it or you're like kind of hanging on to something that maybe you should let go of yeah right yes (laughs) with your own so sometimes it's good to get perspective in editing others yes i've been editing poetry as well i'm like i'm not qualified to edit poetry (laughs) but it's been good a nice good practice like i haven't you know, especially with the grammar and things, it's been quite interesting because I haven't had to like dabble in poetry too much. So it's like reawakening, like year 13 English vibes for me. <laughs> so that does sound interesting. I must mm. say that when like I've considered doing editing courses because I do actually strangely quite enjoy editing. Editing is, I don't mind it. I don't mind Like it. I know a lot of people find it kind of, gets you kind of bogged down and it's kind of slow and I I quite like the challenge of like finding something that's not very well put and kind of like I mean obviously if you're editing someone else's work you're making suggestions but when you're editing your own like the challenge of coming up with something that's better I Mm -hmm. I find it like it's like competing with yourself almost like how can I do this better yeah quite enjoy that (laughs) I've been I was talking to Sarah earlier before we started recording how I'm really looking forward to editing our ancient Greece book. I haven't like looked forward to editing something for a while, but I'm looking forward to editing it, which is it's going to be like a massive piece of work, but it's going to be good. I'm looking good. forward to finally like putting my focus back onto the price of pandemonium for editing because that's kind of slowed down a lot, obviously, because the first priority is completing the ancient Greece book and then the... um the editing of the price of pandemonium so with that we should probably round up yep yep so there are still some spots left on our author spotlight section so if you would like to apply to that you can go to lindersoncreations.com hover your mouse over top of the podcast tab in the main menu and it should give you a drop down to be featured on Dear Writer. And next time on Dear Writer, it's our main podcast where we're going to be talking about the art of emotion and how we can evoke emotion in our readers, but also put emotion into our characters as well. So that should be a good episode, I think. So if you'd like to know any more about us or any of our writing projects, you can visit us at lindersoncreations.com or get in contact with us on Facebook or Instagram under the handle Lindison Creations. If you enjoy the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, subscribe on your podcatcher of choice, tell your friends about us, and we'll be back next week. Happy writing, everyone. <laughs>